Hey, Blaine from DTC Pod here, and today we've got two amazing AI tools for you guys to check out. So AI is obviously eating the world, and these two by HubSpot, where you're really gonna love. So the first one's called Content Assistant. Basically helps you create amazing content, which matters more today than ever. Everyone's creating content, so you've gotta stand out. Um, with HubSpot's AI-powered Content Assistant, you can brainstorm, create, and share content of Flash, all inside a super easy to use CRM. So, you know, think things like, brainstorming blog ideas, blog outlines, drafting copy on any topic from marketing trends to media kits or writing value props for your landing pages, prospecting emails and more. Uh, the second one is ChatSpot, which is basically a conversational bot that sits on top of your HubSpot CRM. So it's gonna automate all the manual tasks inside of HubSpot, help you engage more customers, close more deals and scale a little bit faster. Um, so if you want to find out more about how to use AI to grow your business, check out hubspot.com slash artificial dash intelligence. As a D2C brand, you need real-time financial visibility to save money and make better decisions. Waiting for books from slow and expensive bookkeepers that don't get e-commerce is slowing you down. Trusted by hundreds of brands, Finaloop is a real-time accounting service built by D2C founders for D2C founders. Try Final Loop completely free, no credit card required. Just visit finalloop.com slash d2cpod and get 14 days free and a two-month PL within 24 hours with all the e-com data and breakdowns you need to crush it. What's up, DTC Pod? Today, we're joined by Megan Higney, who is the founder of Message. So, Megan, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you guys are building at Message? Yep, for sure. So Message is the next generation of slide sandals. Um, you know, I I realized that we've been wearing for many, many decades the same slip-on footwear and I think uniquely lived that. Um, I certainly felt that as a consumer, talked to a lot of people about it. My background, um, I started out investing in a lot of founder-run businesses, actually. Um, oftentimes founder-run, founded-funded, became rather big brands. Um, and I really, really respected those founders. I always felt like I was on the wrong side of the table, frankly, when I was doing that. But then I went on to help other founders build their brands and their businesses. And for me, it was a really long journey to get to the point where I let myself be in that seat, right? So I lived this gap and I felt it was palpable and I saw other brands taking, you know, well-worn silhouettes, sneakers, the flat, innovating for materiality, bringing that to market, the consumer really resonating with it. I always wondered why is this silhouette being left behind? It's the one that like you slide on your foot and walk out the door in more often than not. And and yeah, I, I knew there was a there there, but it was a long journey to say, oh, this is this is something that I can do. You know, I was like, why isn't anyone doing this? I'll jump on board. I'll help you build the brand. And then I think it was probably my partner who was like, uh, Meg, I think this one's yours. Uh, and, and I'd love to talk about that. So why don't we go back in time a little bit? It looks like um, so you had come from banking it looks like you were at credit suisse and then you were in, were you in pe at ta associates like what was kind of your role before you found yourself either investing or even getting hands on in the d2c world yeah so i started sort of typical finance you know started in banking went into private equity um actually really focused both my banking and early private equity days were very focused in the healthcare space um at TA found that I loved consumer. I think I resisted it a little bit because often in those settings, you are the woman around the table. And so to be the woman who was also opining on the consumer products, I was like, no, I'm going to get into healthcare and complexity. But I loved it. I loved those brands. I, I loved the immediate connection to the consumer. Um, so that's that's really where I fell in love with brand building and CPG. And from TA, I actually started sort of playing in some of my what now I can connect the dots looking back kind of entrepreneurial endeavors 
started thinking about, you know, how can we build different funds to better serve founders? Because a lot of the brands I wanted to invest in were like, why? I'm super profitable. Like, I don't want to sell a portion of my business to you so that you have to flip that in five years. And so really, I started thinking about different fund formats. Um, I started playing with a with um, a styling brand of my own and really started to understand like web, you know, like how, how to play um, in this in, at the time, what was like actually kind of a new world, you know, in all of us moving our shopping behaviors to the e-com environment. And, and then I, I met some founders in my fund work where I ended up meeting the founders of True Botanicals. And I fell in love with that brand as a consumer. They were very small. And I had a unique skill set that fit the founders really, really well. And they were like, why don't you join us? And that was my official move from feeling and being and living the investor seat to being an operator. And that was, I mean, so clutch to where I'm sitting today. It's funny how the cycles in the markets work because now you're seeing the funds revisiting the structure of profitable companies um, and everything. Um, it's, you know, and so what happened with the fund once you jumped in? Um, did that just get paused? And, and um, what happened there? Are you still oh. investing? And like, uh, how did that all shape out? Actually, you know, I was going to say it's funny, but it's not. It's actually exactly how it goes. My angel investor for message, my first investor on idea phase, like I'm responsible for, you know, I, I have two kids. I financially support my family. Like I want to go off and do this thing, but, you know, I need I need some support to do that. My angel investor was the person who I was building that evergreen fund with. And so he knew, you know, my mindset and how I think about building brands and longevity in brands and what generational brands can mean for, you know, for the people who are working with them, for the partners and the supply chain around them. So I, I, that's pretty special. He has now his focus. I think I was really focused on the finance side and he's shifted into more of a community focus. But he has a beautiful community of what, you know, what we call evergreen founders, where they don't have traditional, you know, they don't have traditional capital on their cap table that says we need liquidity. They're building for the long haul. So he he supported me in that. My operating agreement is actually written probably very uniquely for an early stage brand because it's written with a view of, you know, it you're this seed investment is not necessarily going to convert on the back of more money raised, but rather it's just going to convert because when we hit profitability, we could distribute, you know, we can distribute dollars. This could be a yield play. Like it's, yeah, actually saying that out loud, it just is such a gift to, to see how all of the pieces come together. Right. No, absolutely. And, and it sounds like you have a, a very unique position, not only having sat in the investor seat, having the right partners to launch the brand. But also, uh, you know, one thing that gets us excited is when we talk to investors who actually dip their toes in the operating side, right? Because it's one thing to sit on the sidelines and play the investing side the whole time. But when you're actually in the game and you're you're the one operating, it's a totally different uh, it's a totally different ball game. So would love to talk a little bit more about True Botanicals, um, your experience there. You said you joined early. Now it's a, I mean, I'm pretty sure it's a, it's like a household name, right? Like I've heard of it. I know everyone's pretty much heard of it. So why don't you just tell us uh, a little bit about your experience at True Botanicals and how that unfolded? Yeah. True Botanicals was such, I mean, I just, I look back at that experience with such awe and gratitude. It was it was definitely one of those things where the right product, the brand met the market at the perfect time, right? We were just at sort of that inflection of kind of self-care moving into clean beauty and people starting to understand what we put on our bodies, go into our bodies. And 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 we were early in that. And um, 
we had some beautiful products when I joined. Um, we were in like a couple of we were in a couple of spas. Our DSC business was very very nascent, but we saw we knew we had a well retained customer who liked the product, and so it was a gift from a DTC perspective because it was like, great, we've proven this product market fit. Now, how do we think about building a direct brand? How do we think about our channels? Um, we had early, you know, pretty early on, we ended up typical, you know, typical now, but then I think even still quite typical to think about influence from a perspective of, for us, you know, makeup artists who's using these products on VIPs, how do we get in front of them? And when we did that, we had some early fans that were big name celebrities. And for the revenue that we were when we ended up bringing in Olivia Wilde and when she fell in love with this brand, and obviously I can't talk about the structure of that agreement, but, you know, the way that we ended up working with her, it was it was unique and it was it was really cool because they they do have an outsized influence on how we all buy. Um, so I think early days that was, you know, something our founders were uniquely connected um, kind of with L.A. and the celebrity world. And so we were able to to foster some of those relationships early. And I think that was huge. Um, we definitely saw kind of a step function of growth on the back of that. We were learning kind of as we were going with, you know, Meta and the big pay channels. They were changing so quickly. I mean, it's interesting to think now and how much time I spent trying to think about, you know, attribution and ways that like, well, now it's just kind of like, oh, whatever. Like, you know, we kind of like round numbers, you know, but at the time there, there was, there was some more tinkering to do there. So, you know, that was big. We, we focused on, you know, we really didn't focus on wholesale and that I think relative to the message journeys is interesting because in a lot of ways I think I got to see how the customer evolved at the time it was it was you know very zeit to say like I'm only direct and so these random small specialty accounts was kind of a distraction and now it's funny because I look at it and I'm like no that's everything that's you know that's how this customer can discover can be at a spa in Mexico and see that they're using this product on you or you find the slide that you want to wear everywhere on vacation and that they're getting over the my time at TV I think I watched the customer get more sophisticated and that they could find you in these various places and still know that they could come directly and get to know you as a brand and you know, I don't think we, I don't think we, because we were, you know, the proverbial, like building the plane while flying, like, I don't think we were able to zoom out and really see that, nor did we have the resources to say, okay, well, let's try to do all the things. But now hindsight being 2020, I'm like, oh, this is where it's such a gift to be able to intentionally build message with that knowledge. You know, the retention coming off of a profitable acquisition that happens Yes, you know, at a lower margin because of wholesale, offline or, you know, e-com wholesale can actually be better contribution margin than what you're seeing if you're throwing a bunch of, you know, dollars at these paid channels. And and there's a lot that you need to consider, again, with intentionality, if you're going to go after both wholesale and direct in a really pointed way. So I think you know, the TV experience was a exclusively direct lived experience that I think I was able to appreciate where veering out, venturing outside, but always staying to those core values of what we know is so beautiful about our direct brand, right? We get to storytell, we get to own the relationship, all those things without veering from that. There, there is opportunity in how you can find and how you can show up on that customer's journey in other ways. I'm curious, what were you drawn to coming from the fund? You know, you spoke about product, you spoke about brand, you spoke about, you know, the financial side of marketing and unit economics. Where did you steer to and what part of the business was like your favorite? With True Botanicals? Yes. 
Yeah. So initially, I, you know, I was kind of the business person, right? Like, as often happens when you're coming from finance, it was like a lot of, you know, obviously finance, but even operations, logistics. I ended up taking on all of our manufacturer relationships um, and thinking through supply chain. Um, I really kind of had to grow into, and it was this really organic process where then I think partially as a product of, you know, finance, sometimes you can eye roll, but really strategic, like SPNA, like when you understand numbers, you can be so dangerous with so many things, right? So web, like site ownership became something that I started to move into because it was a lot of data, right? And data became the name of the game and data made a lot of sense to me. Um, people ops became like a natural extension of that too. So it just again, wow, this is such a gift, like getting to reflect back on this and say it out loud. It was very organic. It started in places that that were obvious and that I knew and that I was supporting other companies with in my previous life. And then it extended into places that just made a lot of sense based on my skill set. Um, and eventually that was, you know, essentially the entire org besides brand. Um, and and that was such a gift. And it was where I realized, you know, now in this message journey, there was still something missing. And I think it's because I didn't, that that creative piece, you know, that that idea generation, the visual, the, how you, the storytelling, you know, how you bring this to life, that should, I mean, with a good founder, like that should live with the founder. It's like your baby, you know, like you birthed this thing and you are uniquely situated to see opportunities in product and in, you know, lifestyle and how this fits in consumers' lives. You're just uniquely able to see that. And I was still hungering for that. And, and, and that was my own journey. That wasn't because of something that was missing, you know, with the founders or with the brand that was, that was inside. That was like, wait, what about mine? You know, like there's, there's something there. Um, and for a long time, it was like, I would whiteboard so much from my head. Like beauty is beautiful from a margin perspective, right? It's love, you know, the replenishment cycles and beauty. And so I was like, okay, Where's a brand I can build in beauty? And it was like I was over trying to construct something. And when I came to message, it was actually people often ask, like, so what was the final? Like, why did you decide to do this? And for me, it was more like I just had to stop avoiding it, if that makes sense. Like, it was a passion. I was so interested, but I didn't know footwear and you know, there were certain business kind of like my investor brain coming online being like, well, I'd, you know, I'd rather not have to deal with the returns and this, that and the other, you know, but it was it was it was passion. It was me. It, I had this was the thing that I had that unique lens that no one else had, you know, to this consumer, to this product, to this part of the market. Um, so, yeah, that that was the true botanicals journey, I think, is what informed my ultimate like, oh, yeah, this one's mine. I've got to say yes. <clears throat> and I think that's so important what you just talked about, about like really establishing like founder market fit and founder product fit instead of product market fit, essentially, because at the end of the day, this is what you're spending, you know, the vast majority of your waking time thinking about and doing. And I think is in the early stages of being an entrepreneur, you're just looking for any opportunity that like makes sense from a numbers perspective. You're like, oh my God, I found it. Like I can use this and this is going to get me rich. Great. But like, as you start to mature as an entrepreneur like this, you have a life going on. Like you said, like you have kids, you have a partner, you have a life going on. And when you're spending your waking, working moments, you want to be focused on something that aligns with, you know, what it is that you want to do. And I think what I find really compelling about your career trajectory is starting on the finance side, maybe dipping your toes a little bit closer to consumer, operating in consumer before being called and being like, this is the brand that I want to build. So before we 
go all the way into message and I want to hear all about like now that you've kind of got the brand that you want to build, you know what the product is and you want to take it to market. I want to talk about what were some of like the hardcore learnings that you had from True Botanicals from an operational perspective, right? Like what were some of the things that you learned at True Botanicals that you really wanted to bring with you uh, when you started Message? How long do you have? Um, So many things. I think let's try to boil down a few. I mean, look, at the end of the day, all of this is about people. All of it, right? Once once you get over the hump of like, great, we've got a product that people want. Like the building up the brand and becoming whatever size brand you want to be is all about the people that you bring around to do this thing with. And, you know, we were so lucky to bring incredible people around the brand. There were so many learnings about how growth can mean that one person who's right for something at one time and that you're celebrating and they're like, I, you're a unicorn and I could have never done this without you. Like at another point, isn't in the right spot. And that doesn't mean anything about them. That that could mean that you get really creative and you ask yourself the question, like, where do you fit? Um, but the, the people operations piece, I think, but far and away, you know, all of the other stuff, it's like, we're smart people, you know, <laughs> like, like, it's not that complicated, you know, and sometimes it is, but the people piece, I would say, is the biggest part that I brought with me. You know, the importance of of staying curious, of bringing experts around, um, of asking the questions, of knowing what you know, of knowing what you don't know. You know, opportunity, cost of time. Where should I really be focused? Um, the importance of being able to be like single track, like complete guardrails and then also understand how to how to let those guardrails move for creativity like so it's like wavering guardrails or something you know just the nuance of it there's no black and white right like as soon as you start to get into black and white is where you've there's you've missed something um so i think you know that in addition to the brand i went to afterwards where we were I joined them when we were about the size of when I left TB and then we scaled that like five times in, you know, 16 months. I mean, it was insane. I think it drove similar points home because, you know, being a hundred million dollar plus brand, you're still going through the same things from an operation perspective, just at a different scale. You know, so it was like I I had those learnings, you know, can you... Can you can you break that down? So like you're going through the same operational challenges, but at a different scale, uh, you yeah. know, at, at a bigger scale. So yeah. what do you mean by a bigger scale um, specifically? Yeah. So I assume, you know, bigger mistakes just cost more money. Um, like what what is um, bigger scale mean in that scenario? So take supply chain. Right. Like, you know, supply chain and beauty, supply chain and food, different, very different. Um, and also a lot of similarities with how you think about your raws, how you source those raws, how you make sure that you dual, triple, you know, whatever source those raws, because ultimately they're natural resources. Like at a smaller scale, what you're solving for there you know, and quality of production and how you how you build a network to solve for that quality of production. Again, all people problems, but, you know, working with the suppliers, putting in place the right checks and balances. That looks like one thing when you're, call it, under a $50 million business. When you're a $150 million business, and by the way, what you're selling is a small price point, not a high one, like, you are moving a shit ton of product. Now you're talking about when you're buying raws, you're a market maker of price for those, right? Like it's a different question, but it's applying the same learnings, if that makes sense, right? It's like it's a different problem, but 
I actually didn't find that to be the most challenging part because I already had a lot of learnings of how to solve for some of the similar issues, just a different scale. So I think, I think that's, and, and I have, you know, a lot of friends that run very big brands and in our minds, we tell ourselves like, oh, well, once you're there, then, and every time it's a sobering conversation because I'm like, you're running a billion dollar brand and we're still talking about the same shit, you know, like yours is just, you're just so far removed because you're talking about like this layer of direct reports that are a bunch of C's, you know, like. Yeah, I, I, I love it because it's like, you know, we can zoom into every problem as a founder, but it reaches the point where you just can't, there's just not enough bandwidth to do that. And it's good to take the step back and say, what is the principle here? What print, like, is this a people problem at the end of the day? Um, what principles do I have established that I can just apply to this and look at it? Oh, wait, this is the same as like X problem long time ago. It's just showing up in a different form at a different scale and size, but it can be solved without getting into the weeds of things. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's not always easy, right? That's not, oftentimes... I really respect founders who completely, who are just so self-aware in that they're like, yeah, I, I liked solving those other problems in that other way. <laughs> you know, I don't, this is less fun and less interesting. Like, yes, totally. It's different. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a trip, but definitely um, has meant so much to, to have some of those reflections and to know like with with my team now when there are bumps or questions or ah you know relative to again going back to supply chain I can take it all with this like kind of I can be more even about it you know I'm like this isn't the end of the world like we're gonna figure this out and by the way we figure it out and then everyone celebrates and I'm all for celebration and somewhere in the back of my mind I'm like yeah, it's just going to be another problem in a different way, you know, like, and however long. And the more that we can keep our eyes, you know, be head on the swivel, be super aware about that, try to solve for all of the pieces that we can solve for, and then appreciate that there's going to be ones that we're surprised about. And it's how we respond to those, not, you know, having to not, not having to predict them all. Yeah, I, I love that because... I think a lot of entrepreneurs, when you first start, you everything is a crazy problem, but that's kind of the reality of entrepreneurship. There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be fires to put out. And even this is something that resonates with me and Ramon because, you know, we've been through our first share of companies right now. And it's kind of like the, the further on you go, the more calm you can be as an operator. And that makes uh, a lot of a lot of difference. Um, Megan, the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about is you've you've kind of been through it all you've seen it all from like we said from the pe side from the investment side from the operation side scaling up a brand like true botanicals other brands going to you know 10 10 plus figures so talk to me now about starting message right and how like walk me through the we we've already understood what like the formation of the brand looked like from a conceptual and a a message and what you wanted to create with the brand. But like, now let's talk X's and O's. What, how did it actually unfold besides like the fundraising part? Let's talk about, um, you know, what did it require you to do? What were the skills that you needed to learn and apply? Like you said, you knew supply chain, but you hadn't really worked in, you know, in, in footwear. So let's talk about like, what were some of the first orders of action for the business? What did you need to do first? And how did message kind of come into existence? So, when I set out to build message, I didn't actually, I didn't, I didn't set out to build message. I set out to build the best slide that I'd ever worn because I was like, you know, I know I can build a beautiful brand. Um, I don't know if I can build the best slide. And so that was my exclusive focus. I did not, people asked me, what is this thing called? I called it my slides project. I was like, I'm not spending time branding this thing. Like, I will go down that if I get this product right. So what it looked like was, I mean, first, and I don't know if this is interesting to you, but it's definitely 
a truth relative to my story, you know, to get to the point where I was buying comps. So like, you know, buying everything from Burke to Adilets to Bottega and Marnie slides, like before I got into my garage and started tearing things apart, which is a very key part of the story, there was a big hurdle just in my own internal experience, as I alluded to, in order to say, okay, this is mine, I'm doing this. And even questions that I had around like, do I want to put more product into the world? Like, is this my calling, right? And I started doing a ton of research on material science. Like, do I want to make a compostable shoe? Or do I want, you know, and so I, I did a lot of work there when I got the clarity that, you know, that I believe from a demand side, if we can give the customer something that's uncompromising in comfort, you know, in style and is done responsibly, that we will be able to move the needle relative to how we are producing that. Um, from a, I, I like to talk in responsibility versus sustainability, but, you know, common parlance in a sustainable way. And when I got that clarity, what I did was I said, I need to understand the things that work for me personally, and then I need to do a shit ton of research relative to what feet need, want, what has worked for them and what hasn't. And I really... I was actually talking to someone about this yesterday who asked if I had pause because I, I, I'm not a podiatrist. You know, I didn't work in shoes. Like, did you ever have a moment where you were like, fuck, like this isn't mine? And I really didn't because I knew I am good at bringing experts together and I knew I could thread the needle. And so what became very clear to me is that what I was trying to do was I was trying to exist in this gap I saw in the market, which was between luxury, you know, this, these luxury sandals and performance sandals. And so what I started to do was talk to all of the best designers I could find, pinging everyone in my network that lived in each of those worlds. And I, what I learned was that they spoke two entirely different languages. The luxury folks, it was, it was beautiful. It was artful. It was aspirational. They did not give two licks about how it felt on your foot, right? The performance folks, like I ended up um, taking this to Portland and working with a guy who used to build sneakers with Bill Bowerman at Nike. He could care less what brand I was building. He loved the idea that I had the question, how can we think about the ride of a, a slide of a shoe that is only held to the to the footbed with one piece of material and he loved that and we geeked out over it right and so working with people who were really thinking about the mechanics of footwear and then working with people who were thinking about the design and the look of it it became very clear to me okay i can actually be the translator between these two and and I can thread this needle. So I guess yet the short answer is there was there was a certain level of rolling up my sleeves, cutting up these shoes. I mean, I had to take a perspective to all of the experts I worked with. And maybe that's like the fact that, yeah, I, I do. I love I've always enjoyed feeling good in what I put on my body like I dreamed one day my job would involve reading Vogue. I don't know. Like, I'm I'm somewhat, like, I probably have some OCD perfectionist tendencies for sure. So I was, like, very able to look at what was out there and what I didn't think was ideal. And then once I sort of internalized that and metabolized that for myself, in addition to the experts, I started interviewing everyone I, who would talk to me. And I just had some like very simple questions and I wanted to understand how people were buying their slides, how they were wearing them, what the drawbacks were, what they were, right? The brands themselves, how much they were spending on them. And that I think was a turning point for me because that's when I realized, and I think a lot of founders have this moment when you almost think you're living this unique experience. It's like a metaphor for life probably you're uniquely living this and no one else is. And then as soon as you hear it reflected back, like, oh, that's validating. You're, you don't like the same things I don't like. Like that's bothering you too. That's not working for you either. 
you don't feel good spending $400 on something that's uncomfortable either. Like those interviews were really key in me having the conviction to go after this. So it was like getting the information, getting the experts, and then looking outside and just basically like closing my eyes to what I thought and what I felt and only listening to what other people did, really trying not to bias those two things to get the conviction to move forward. We are really excited to announce that DTC Pod is officially part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network is the audio destination for business professionals, and we're really excited about being part of the network because we're going to be able to keep growing the show, bringing you guys amazing guests, and obviously helping you guys learn from the best founders, marketers, and builders of the most successful consumer brands. So anyway, keep listening to DTC Pod and more shows like us on the HubSpot Podcast Network at HubSpot.com slash podcast network got it and then so once you kind of had that conviction you've brought everyone together um you know the direction you guys are heading what what comes next like we're you know tell me about the first po that you made maybe some of the different product iterations and shipping maybe your first um you know orders to customers yep so the first so from Finding that lab in Portland, we built the last. So the last is like, you've probably, do you know what a last, you've probably seen, it's like a faux foot and it's what all shoes are built around, right? So we we built that last. I had gone on a trip and this is where like just divine timing and everything comes in. I had gone on a trip to Portugal where I fell in love with cork. It's everywhere there. Um, learned about the nature of cork. The responsibility of cork went to the forest met the people who are harvesting it so cork was kind of in the back of my mind but so was portugal and so i had this last and people asked where are you going to produce this thing and i just blurted out portugal i didn't really know much but i felt like it's not you know it there's a quality that is not italy in terms of price point i knew italy wasn't ours but it's also not Asia. Like it just felt like this beautiful in between um, and it housed cork. And I had this dream that our supply chain could be something that was really tight um, because that's a big impact when you start to think about your imprint. Um, and so the supply chain to be tight. So my, where I produce, you know, out in Port, Porto, Portugal, they can drive to pick up my uppers from my knit factory they can drive i mean they're all within a 40 kilometer drive of one another they can drive to get the outsoles to get the midsoles the cork is literally coming from 45 minutes away um and that's a big you know when we it's a whole nother soapbox to get on but when we talk about materials that are where we're moving the needle forward and doing better than plastics or otherwise like you also need to think about am i shipping that from brazil to asia to be produced to back again like there's a big impact there as well so this portugal piece really came to life and i i just talked to some friends who have rad brands with beautiful product and was like put me in touch with every person you can every you know production house agent i first started working with an agent out there so they basically are your intermediary they have a lot of the relationships with suppliers and i brought them something i had mocked up from a footbed i had ripped apart and then a sleeve of a glove that i cut off of my partner's like work glove pulled over the footbed for this elasticity thing that i felt really strongly about and how to hold the foot closer to the footbed and I literally brought that hideous thing to Portugal and was like we need to turn this into a good looking slide and that was so that was the beginning multiple I mean that was so many rounds of prototyping this is nothing again I love I love my factories I love the people multi-generational I mean you know just footwear experts and they are not used to innovating they are not used to doing something new there was so much pushback megan what are you talking about <laughs> like yeah, we've never done that before great <laughs> we are doing something new we are not doing what you've done before so there was a lot of back and forth um and then it got to a point where i was just like look we're launching for summer of 23 like 
hard stop. So we're going to figure this out. And and we did. And there's still some some tweaks and updates and things that I wanted to have rolled out for that first few POs that weren't that were rolling out for fall. That was a big learning for me. You know, this, these perfectionist pieces, it's like at the end of the day to put something out in the world, you kind of have to be OK with it. Not looking like not being the perfect ideal that exists in your head, if that makes sense. Right. Like as soon as you birth it, like through the canal like it's it's its own being and I you know there were just small things things that in fact I thought were like I didn't love this and I've gotten amazing feedback from customers on it you know so you just have to some point there's a go button and you gotta go and so I gave myself the launch date April 5th um we had to air inventory out to hit that being painful um you know a lot of thing like opportunities there I knew we tightened our boxes so that it was as tight as possible so that air shipments wouldn't be as expensive because sometimes you got to pull on that for celebrity you know for um photo early photo shoots PR and the like so we pulled that forward and and we went and and we got a lot of really good feedback and we, you know, Ali's on the line, like PR converted PR that I thought would be top of funnel. Right. We all know this. Like we're not we, I can't ride Ali for revenue numbers, but now I secretly want to because I'm like, it works, you know, like and so a lot of really good learnings um, and just I think the biggest one is this validation that 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 gap is real. And I think that's why we're seeing conversion off of articles that you wouldn't expect. I think that's why when I test on Meta, you know, there's some ridiculous numbers, even with, you know, it's not big budgets, but numbers I've never seen before because we're not in a super crowded marketplace. Like this is people are ready for a new option here. And we're we're pretty clear and we've gotten the data feedback that we're pretty spot on about who this customer is. So how, how do you feel about, you know, you've, you've, you've been in the hyperscale um, rocket ship. And so when you see a market that you're seeing numbers you haven't seen before, how do you balance out? And and I don't know how much you guys have raised if you, um, if you guys have, but how do you balance out, you know, I'm building this profitably and what I want versus the other side hyperscale nobody else is bidding on this stuff and you know this is the time to do it because you know the copycats are going to come out of the closet so uh, how do you balance both of those things out ramon you hit it on the head i mean this is what i'm living right now it's like the the opportunity cost of not just got a lot higher right so like you can talk you know, I, these values that in a lot of ways, it requires some degree of patience, right? Like, like I said, wholesale is a part of our strategy that's rolling out in, in the fall. Like I could slow roll, dial back my burn, you know, wait for that to come online, like all the things in order to get to a place where I'm really just gunning for profitability so that I can control my destiny. And up to this point, I mean, I'll tell you that I had that angel investor two years ago. That was half a million dollars. And then I took another half a million before launch. And that's it. And and in a lot of ways, I think because of my background and a lot of what we talked about, I was priding myself on like less is actually success versus what we ought, what right, what we've seen historically, which is like celebrating these huge raisins. And I would say feedback to self, like overly so, you know, having a little bit of cash right now, I would be able to turn things on that should be turned on, you know, based on what I'm seeing. And I would be able to have the person who I've got like a tiny fraction of their time and they're like a unicorn and I want all of their time, I'd be able to have them on the team and so that's been something that I've been sitting with in a big way lately and realized um, that I was a bit 
short-sighted about. Like, it's not money that's a problem. You can find capital from value-aligned partners in a really good way. I don't need to bring on, and it's not to say anything negative about traditional VC, but if I know that that's not for me, that doesn't need to be who I go to, right? There there are a lot of folks out there. So I, I've had this reframe and I am, I'm talking to family offices and, and otherwise um, some folks that like strategically make a lot of sense and are so comfortable with how I'm thinking about this and wanting to build a profitable, you know, generational brand and they love that. So I think it was, yeah, it, it was just a little bit of like a black and white thinking. You know, that I said earlier, right? Like that, that, that got me. And now I am ready to have a little bit more to play with because like you said, it's silly not to when you're getting these reads from the market and you're not going to have forever as your, you know, first mover advantage. Like, right. Well, I believe that at one point this is going to be the thing that investors are sitting around the table. And we've seen this before in beauty many times where they're saying like, duh that was so obvious you know like how how were there not so many brands like burke sells over 25 million pairs a year you know like they've they've done an amazing job like threading this needle and why is there not a modern brand that's taking a different and style forward approach to this like i think it's gonna be a duh and so i gotta i gotta put some I got I got to push the gas a little bit. No, the the reason I I was saying it is because you know one thing is to have healthy unit economics and understand a good business can be built here. But when you say there's numbers you haven't seen before and you've seen a lot of numbers, um, you know that that instinct kicks in of I know an opportunity when I see one and these don't come around often, um, and the FOMO kicks in as well of not taking a totally. Totally. And I've I've like I've challenged myself. I'm like, okay, am I am I not being patient enough? But I really think what you're saying is spot on. I think it's like you know it when you see it, and if you see it, why not go? You know, like I'm not here to kick my feet up and build a brand that's like paying me and a couple people enough to have a great life. Like I'm building a brand to make an impact, you know, and if it's telling me the market, the customer is telling me, oh, there's a there there, then I need to make sure that I can go after that. So Megan, talk to us a little bit as we kind of wrap up here. You guys launched recently. You're seeing great market traction. You're seeing great numbers. Um, I get it too. It's actually it's actually funny. I think uh, from, from, a con- from the consumer's perspective, I think we are seeing a trend where just in the way people live, the like lifestyle, um, the products that they're looking for, they're like you're saying, there aren't those D to C or as many options for slides. Like slides, like people want them. Like, um, and I think that along with the brand, with the product, I think you guys are right place, right time. Talk to me a little bit about expectations now and game plan. Um, as you've gotten through launch, you're seeing that traction, you're seeing that success. Like, what do you have? Like, what's on your mind right now? Like, what's the game plan? Where are you guys headed? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess. The good news is the expectations are really mine, right? Like I said, because I have investors that are friends, family that that are not by any means, you know, breathing down my neck on a quarter to quarter basis. But I have certainly upped the ante on myself. Um, so, you know, this brand four to five million top line and I can be spitting off dollars on the bottom line. So in my eyes, it's like, there is a definite sprint to that because then and I and I think that it's it's a single raise of a few million dollars and I think that we're there. And so I think my focus is bring that in, you know, sleep well at night knowing that in my eyes, you know, and the way that I'm gonna think about the PL and building this brand, that's the last money that we take in. And know that it gives me some flexibility to go after these opportunities that I've seen. Partners, you know, collaborations, we've seen a ton there. I mean, I won't name drop them because I don't have images of them yet, but celebrity, you know, we've 
like seeing a lot of traction there. I've got this wholesale showroom that's kicking off and I'm so bullish there. We have a Canadian distributor that just picked us up. International is actually an incredible way to grow your business profitably, if intelligently. It's very small from a margin perspective because of what you're giving up, but it's also very low lift and it's cash like positive because you're getting that all up front. Um, so there's some international markets that I want to talk to. Um, we do a couple of drops per season. So fall, we have some upcoming product that I'm super excited about. It's going to really take this from being the slide project <laughs> that I started and you know you will really see that this is a footwear brand that's going to be around in a seasonless way for a very long time so i'm super stoked on that um so i think it's yeah it's it's next year we should be in a place where we are you know have a very clear path to sustainable profitability and um and and we have an ability to still from the balance sheet put some some dollars you know to work investing in some of these channels that we're seeing work really well for us and i think again if you can do that in a way where it's not all or nothing it's not throwing you know the shit at the wall to see what sticks but it's strategic and it's targeted and it's with learning constantly being iterated I think that's like the best of both worlds and I, I I do need a little bit of budget to open that up but um when we do I think we're gonna be surprised by what we see so I think the answer is that I have rather high expectations but I'm trying to I would I I would say in the next 12 to 18 months the focus is that we see some nice growth that gets us to this point where we have control of our destiny and that we still have the ability to you know within reason invest intelligently um and that cash isn't being tied up by inventory because my terms are good and it's you know we're in a good way from there Amazing. Um, no, we're we're super excited to uh, excited to see how the brand continues to evolve, and we'll have to have you back on. Um, you know, once we once we get through some of this growth, and we can re recap on all of it. So, for anyone who's listening, where can we find more? Where can we connect with you? Um, you know, are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? Like, shout out your socials as well as where can we find out more about the brand and message? Yep. So message is wearmessage.com. We're at wearmessage. That's all of our handles. Um, I'm just Megan Higney. And this was such a joy. Thank you for letting me walk down, you know, the lane of the journey, the path to get here. I think the journey is what it's all about, right? Not the destination. So thank you. Thank you, Megan. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.